You're listening to After the Encore, the music podcast that explores what happens after the music fades, what happens after the encore. I'm your host, Joe Shaw, and welcome to a special one-off edition of the podcast, a single track, if you will. Yes, this podcast typically releases seasons every six to eight months, volumes as we call them, themed around specific different genres or topics, Uh, but every so often you will have an opportunity to tell a story that doesn't quite fit into a volume that you're working on. Just like so many artists that we interview on the show, there are songs that don't fit into whatever album they're working on, so they just release them when it's done because it needs to be out in the world, even if it doesn't fit alongside anything else they're currently working on. Such is the case today. I'm super happy to bring to you my interview with Mr. John Oates. Uh, Throughout the entirety of music history, uh, I struggle to think of another iconic duo in my impressionistic state, as well as the rest of the world, than Hall and Oates. So John was so gracious to come on and tell his story growing up in, in Pennsylvania, getting involved in the music scene in Philadelphia, transitioning into meeting Daryl Hall, their entire career and where his life is now having several solo albums writing a memoir it's really great i know you're going to enjoy it so stick around for this very special single track edition of after the encore with john oates after this listening to After the Encore. I'm your host, Joe Shaw, and I am here with the amazing, the incomparable, the I can't even find the words. It's really making my dreams come true to speak to Mr. John Oates. John, how are you doing today? Well, Joe, with an intro like that, I better live up to it. I have to be extremely interesting. (laughs) I'm really excited to talk to you today. There's a lot of great things that have happened in your career. And I think one of the things that we love to do on After the Encore is do that deep dive and not just in career retrospective, which we're going to get into, but also just the the artisticness of the music process and what it specifically means to folks. So to kick off the episode, I really would like to ask you, what does music mean to you? Well, it, it is, it's, uh, you know, without sounding too much like a cliche, it's been my entire life. I, I don't know what what or who I would have been had music not been something that um, I was born with in a sense um, so I never really questioned my uh, you know my avocation you know it was always something that I just did and I guess you know at some point if people would have started booing and throwing stuff at me I may have reconsidered a different career path but that never happened so um, only on certain <laughs> occasions but, but I got over that right. quickly. Um, it was just one of those things. I don't even know how to explain it other than I never had to question who I was or what I would be doing. Yeah. And I think that is really interesting to think about how, you know, with, within music, it's so baked into kind of who we are as individuals and our DNA as far as appreciating music and being drawn to music. And then I love being able to peel back the extra layer of people who are actively creating music and have been for such a long time, such as yourself, about how it's really woven into, I think you're, you know, almost the marrow of, of an individual. And, and it's, it goes, you know, folks have said uh, it's, it's akin to breathing. You said it's everything, you know, it's, it's so much a part of, 
who you are that it really resonates on a, on a completely other level. And I find that so fascinating. Um, I'd love to dig into, let's start kind of from your early life growing up. So you were born in, uh, was it New York city and then moved to, uh, near Philadelphia, if I'm remembering correctly. Yeah, that's, that's right. I, I was, my whole family is basically New York based. Um, my father got a job in the early, early 1950s, um, in Pennsylvania in a small town outside of Philadelphia. And, uh, that he moved the entire family, which was a major deal, especially considering the rest of the family stayed in the New York area. So it was, uh, it was quite an adventure and it gave me, uh, you know, it really, it changed my life in so many ways. You know, had that not happened, I never would have met Daryl Hall, obviously. Um, you know, so many things, you know, there's so much, so much that happened growing up in the Pennsylvania, Philadelphia area. Um, you know, the music I listened to, the opportunities that I had, here again, the proximity to the city of Philadelphia, all that really um, made me who I am. Let's talk about your early life growing up, even before getting into high school and all of that. Was music a part of your family growing up? Was it something you were drawn to before you could even speak? Or was it something else that really turned uh, that corner for you to start picking up the guitar and learning music? Well, the, um, I'll go, I'll step back. You know, I, evidently I had a musical talent from, from birth because sure. at three or four, just really as a, as a baby, you know, being able, being able to talk, I began to sing. And uh, I have a recording of me singing, Here Comes Peter Cottontail, uh, <laughs> that, that my parents recorded at, at one of those little uh, phonograph booths at Coney Island Amusement Park. You know, the kind of, in, back in those days, you would go into a booth, you would put a, a coin in, you would sing or talk or whatever, and it would, you know, a little disc would come out, literally uh, a 45 record would come out. And I still wow. have that record. Uh, years later, I went back and sang All Shook Up, the Elvis song, uh, when that came out. So, um, but, you know, so evidently, you know, I had this ability to sing. My mother uh, recognized that she became a bit of a stage mother. I think she liked to live vicariously through me. Uh, so when we did move to Pennsylvania, and I was about five or six, um, the only music teacher in the little town where we lived was an accordion teacher. So she trotted me down there to the accordion teacher uh, who gave me this little baby accordion. And um, I never practiced and was not interested in any way, shape or form. Uh, so it sat in the closet in between lessons. And then after the third lesson, I guess, uh, he said, he's not practicing, you know, and my mom said, well, why aren't you practicing? I said, I, I hate this. I don't want to do it. I said, I want to play the guitar like Elvis. And uh, that, that was it. So um, I got a guitar and uh, no one ever had to ask me to practice again. Let's put it that way. <laughs> That's awesome. Now, I know one of your uh, influential teachers, uh, perhaps it was the earliest one, Jerry Ricks. Um, talk to me about how influential he was to you and how that really started shaping your style and what you were drawn to, to practicing and playing. Yeah, I took lessons at, at an early age, at six years old, with a, in a little music school in the little town of Lansdale, Pennsylvania. Uh, but that was just to kind of get me going, the basic chords, you know, some basic things. After that, I was pretty much self-taught up until the um, late 60s, really. Um, when I moved to Philadelphia, I did. I met this amazing guy named Jerry Ricks. And um, he... Um, he was a very unique guy. He worked at one of the premier uh, folk clubs in town. And so he knew and had worked with a lot of the amazing roots and folk and blues performers who were being rediscovered during that early 60s folk revival that was happening on college campuses. Uh, so when I met Jerry, he was very much involved in that. Uh, you know, I would go to his house and Doc Watson would be sitting on the couch or, wow. or Mississippi John Hurt or, or someone like that. Across the street from Jerry lived a guy named Dick Waterman, who became the kind of uh, de facto manager for Sunhouse, Sonny Terry and Brownie McGee, Robert Pete Williams. Bonnie Raitt was his girlfriend and Bonnie was living with him. And if anyone ever wants to know why Bonnie Raitt's blues is so authentic, that's why. Um, and so, uh, so I was really, I, I was at the right place at the right time. And I got a chance to understand and to uh, see firsthand uh, how, how these guys were playing, what they were doing, um, absorb the, the actual sound. So for me, this roots of blues music and, and stuff that I've been doing ever since that time really is, um, you know, it's, it's authentic as, as you know, I'm, I'm as, as close a link to these originators as, as you can possibly be. 
Um, so anyway, that's, uh, that's, the, that's the basis for my uh, interest in roots music. And of course, I had other interests too, because I played in an R&B band, and, right. you know, uh, listened to a lot of R&B and early soul music. So uh, Philadelphia was a hotbed of, of inspiration during that period of time. Yeah, it, it really is interesting to think about all of the, I mean, I, you know, you're based out of Nashville now and there's so much great talent contained in that city that you're hearing so much come out of it. This just genuine authenticity. It's, it's, it's incredible. A lot of the music that's coming out of there. And I think in a similar fashion, you've got uh, Philadelphia uh, back then and perhaps as well now, but back then in the time period that you're talking about in the 60s, you've just got so many different eclectic styles in this music and people really, there's this almost presence of this blues and, and R&B and soul music that's coming out of this area that would really shape a lot of the music for generations to come. That's right. And and I think it's so interesting. I would love to know, um, besides, you know, besides Elvis, one of the, um, one of the th artists that, you know, I would love to know about is, is your influences beyond Elvis. So I know for instance, like when I think of blues, some of the blues artists that I've really been drawn to, you've got little Walter, you've got Howlin' Wolf and, and of course, Muddy Waters, but what are some of those influences that really imprinted on you? Well, you know, I'm, I'm old enough to remember music before rock and roll. Um, my parents listened to big band music. It was the music of their generation, of their youth. Um, as a young, young kid, that's the music I heard. It seeped into me. Uh, Ray Charles was an early influence on me. Uh, when I first heard Ray Charles, I, I was very much drawn to him on, on so many levels. Uh, but and then as rock and roll began, and I realized that something new had happened, you know, it was Chuck Berry uh, on guitar. Chuck, Chuck's music was, is deceptively simple and basic. Um, so of course, as a young guitar player, I wanted to do that. Uh, Little Richard, I loved Little Richard. I loved, uh, you know, Fats Domino. And of course, all the doo-wop groups, like the Five Satins and the Moon Glows and things like that, uh, all the harmony groups. And it was really that amalgamation of stuff that led me to the early 60s folk revival. And then it was uh, Mississippi John Hurt, as I mentioned, was a huge influence on me. And still to this day, I'm you know, I, a lot of the new music I'm making now with the guys in Nashville is, uh, is really informed and inspired by the music of Mississippi John Hurd and Blind Blake, a uh, ragtime guitar player, um, you know, uh, even Jimmy Rogers, uh, you know, his, his earlier stuff, um, you know, and, and uh, you know, there's so, there's so many influences that I draw from. Yeah. I want to know, you know, it's, it's interesting to me because you do talk about spanning so many different generations and time periods and being influenced by the big band era of, of your parents. And that was the music of their generation. And I know that, you know, from other artists that we've talked to on the show, we've talked about, you know, a high school band or high school choir or that kind of stuff. And, and that they're speaking from perhaps an eighties or a nineties uh, generation of these are the, these are, you know, Gen X or even millennial of the time period and when they were coming up. But what was it like for you in high school? I know that, you know, in, in within high school, you recorded with was it the Masters? Is that correct? Yeah, I, I, I joined that band in eighth grade. Okay, all right. Let's talk. Let's talk through that. What was that experience like for you? Yeah, well, I you know I played with a, a good friend of mine who played the drums in sixth and seventh grade, and his brother, older brother, had a good electric guitar, which I ended up buying from him, um, and we just messed around drums and guitar, just as a starting point, I guess you'd call it. And there was a band that they they called themselves uh, the Avalons. And they were older than me. And um, they had a, it was a guitar. It was guitar, organ, uh, saxophone, and drums. And they, um, I kind of found them, or they found me. I'm not sure which. Uh, as it turned out, I was a better guitar player than the guy who was playing guitar. So he switched <laughs> to bass. Uh, and that became the band, which eventually became, it, it, it went from the Avalons to the Soul Sound Continentals to the Masters. Uh, and the Masters was, a, was a, you know, had uh, my sister sang background along with a good friend of mine named Nevin Harper. And then we had, uh, we incorporated a trombone player. So we had a sax and a trombone. So we had a little bit of a horn section. And uh, that band got really good. And it led to my first recording with them in the summer of 67. I love that. And at 67, walk, walk me through what, 
So you started with that in, with them in eighth grade, but in 67, what grade were you in at that point? I, would, I graduated high school in 66. Okay. Okay. So you were just out of high school at that point. All right. And then we know in the next section, we're going to get into your, your time with Daryl Hall as well. But, but as we start getting towards that point, what was the decision? So where were you at from a state of mind of going to Temple University, wanting to pursue a degree? And what was it? Journalism? Is that correct? Well, I didn't okay. really want to, I did not want to pursue a degree in journalism. I took, Got it. <laughs> I took the path of academic least resistance. Sure. Um, uh, it basically, it was the Vietnam War. I did, obviously, I did not want to go to Vietnam. Um, I had a right. bunch of friends who unfortunately went to Vietnam and were, were killed. Um, it was a very chaotic time for, to be a, a you know, teenager, to be a college a student. And um, anyway, I, I was always, uh, writing has always come easy to me, regardless of whether it be songwriting or prose or whatever. Uh, so I, um, I, I basically did that so I could do music. Um, I'm, I, I chose uh, Temple University because I wanted to be in Philadelphia. I, I grew up in a small town, but I wanted to be in the city and I wanted to experience that, you know, have that experience and closer to whatever music was happening. Um, so that's really, that was why I went to Temple University. And that's why I studied journalism. Um, to just, you know, get my degree and kind of get deferred for four years and concentrate on music, basically. You know, that's a good, that you bring up a very interesting point. And I think it's something that not, I think we're so far away from the idea of the draft that it, it becomes a distant memory in a lot of folks' mind, or perhaps not even a memory in others. And, you know, the the conditions of the of the draft were there was a lot of folks that were being drafted. If you were not in college, um, if you were a certain age, certain disposition, I don't, I, I'm not as familiar with the act of the draft. I know that my, my dad did go into Vietnam, so I'm uh, roughly familiar with it from that perspective. But what was the almost mentality of, of you and perhaps maybe your, your circle of friends with regards to that time period and making the decision, you know, you touched on a little bit about going to college, but just what was maybe even the frame of mind that you had within the, the way the world looked at that point, if that kind of makes sense. Well, it's very easy to see. If you just look back on the last few months with all the various demonstrations mm -hmm. for Black Lives Matter and the uh, chaos in the streets of various American cities that we've, that is all over the news, that's exactly what was happening during that period of time, except the, 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 the thrust of the, of the protests were, had, had to do with Vietnam, getting out of Vietnam, um, but civil rights were still a big part of it. So really, you know, when I see, when I saw the, the things that were going on in the last few months, it wasn't really something new to me. I had experienced it already as a college student in the 60s. Um, you know, not that it's, you know, that's not making it better or, you know, or making any, uh, you know, casting any opinions about it. It's just right. that I had seen it before and now I'm seeing it again on a, you know, with, with a different set of circumstances, but that's what it was like. So you don't really have to imagine it. Just look at the news for the last few months. And then if you could kind of um, imagine what it was like to be a, a kid in the sixties and experiencing something very similar. That makes a lot of sense. And I think the, the added layer of that is that there's also that draft going on. And so you're seeing, uh, your your friends and your neighbors going off to war uh, from that perspective. So it's 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 always interesting to me to think about that time period um, because, as you said, there is so so many similarities with regards to the the temperature of the, the country. If that's yes, a, a good very, way to say very, it, very, there's a lot of parallels. Yes, right. I like it. Well, as we're getting ready to wrap up this first segment, I'd love you to, to tease us up for the next one. And and if I recall correctly, you bumped into Daryl Hall in a service elevator um, on the campus of Temple University. Is that correct? Close. Okay. All right. <laughs> Close enough. Not, not quite. Okay. Um, Daryl right. had a group called the Temptones. I had a group called the Masters. We had both individually recorded singles that were being played on Philadelphia radio at the same time. Okay. He was a music student at Temple University. I was a journalism student, but however, we did not know each other. I was aware of his group because I heard his song on the radio and vice versa. We were ind independently invited to a disc jockey's teenage dance in a bad neighborhood in West Philadelphia. And while waiting to go on in the backstage area, uh, a big uh, gang fight broke out and we went down to the street level in an elevator, as you said, but the <laughs> elevator was not in Temple University. We Got it. Okay. The Delphi Ballroom in West Philadelphia. And uh, that's how we met, basically. I like it. All right. Well, you're listening to After the Encore. I'm your host, Joe Shaw, and we'll be right back. 
Back to After the Encore. I'm your host, Joe Shaw, and I'm here with Mr. John Oates. And now we're going to dig into the uh, the the specific period of your time where you're now Daryl Hall and John Oates, as opposed to uh, part of uh, a different group or, or what have you. So now we talked about how you first met uh, Daryl Hall. And let's let's dig through some of those early years of of deciding to connect and starting to lay the groundwork for what would become such an iconic duo years down the road. Well, what happened was um, my, my group, uh, getting back to this Vietnam thing, two of the guys got drafted. Uh, the group fell apart. Uh, Daryl's group was kind of in the process of falling apart. I joined that group, his group, uh, very briefly as a backup guitar player. And uh, when that group uh, fell apart, Daryl and I just became friends. I think we, we both recognized something in each other. Um, and uh, we, we shared apartments. We hung out together. Um, Daryl was working in the studio and, and with a, a bar band in the evenings. I was working, uh, playing in blues bar, uh, blues bands and playing some folk, folk music. And uh, that went on from 68 through 1970. So we never really formally worked together. We just were friends. We, we, then we had different apartments. We, you know, we knew each other. It was a very small hippie community in, in the center city area of Philadelphia where we lived. Uh, in the spring of 1970, after I graduated from college, I went to Europe. I wanted, it was a dream of mine to go to Europe. I, I took a backpack and a guitar and a few hundred dollars and took off. Uh, while I was there, I had subletted my apartment to Daryl's sister and her boyfriend uh, while I was gone. And so after I came back from Europe, I left in June, came back in September. Um, I came back to my apartment and there was a padlock on the door because they didn't pay the rent. <laughs> so... Um, I had nowhere to live and I had no money and I had nothing basically except the backpack and the guitar that I started with. Right. And I walked, uh, literally walked a few blocks down to where Daryl was living and knocked on his door and said, Hey, I have nowhere to go. Your sister kind of closed me out here. Um, he said, Oh, no problem. Just, just live here for a while. And I moved into a little room upstairs in this little tiny house. And that's where he had his piano, electric piano. And, um, we he would come up and start playing the piano and I had my guitar and next thing you know he was not happy with what he was doing I wasn't doing anything basically and uh, that's how it started and we began to write songs now John talk to me about some of those early collaborations those first couple albums you're coming into kind of that singer songwriter era in the early 70s we know that's going to transition into disco by the end of the era but what was it like trying to write albums for a constantly evolving and changing music landscape um, was it something where you, it was imprinted on you what was going on at the time or did you find yourself taking some of the music stylings of what was popular and incorporating it into your own sound um we were the first record we made was very singer-songwriter oriented it was very acoustic very uh you know kind of pastoral i guess you'd say um and that was our first record because we, they were the type of songs we had. We didn't have a band. It was just the two of us. Uh, we recorded that and kind of got it out of our system and then began to move on very quickly. We immediately moved to New York. And uh, the second album we did, which is really more like our first album, is called Abandoned Luncheonette. And that's where we began to blend this kind of acoustic thing with our R&B uh, influences. And it became a very, you know, very important album and, and a, you know, and actually put us on the map with the song She's Gone. And, but, but we would be very, very quickly realized that we needed a band if we were going to tour because we had, we had toured a little bit and realized that the, the acoustic kind of quiet singer songwriter thing wasn't really working as well as, 
you know, we wanted it to. Um, and we wanted to have a little bit more dynamics and a little bit more uh, power, basically. So that moved us into uh, recording. And then, you know, from there, we recorded with Todd Rundgren in 1974. And that was a very experimental electronic um, uh, hard rock albums, for lack of a better word. Right. And really, it was us just floundering around and trying to find ourselves. So uh, then in 75, uh, 70, late 74, we went to LA, recorded uh, the Silver album that had the hit Sarah Smile on it. And of course, that got us kind of on track. And that was our first real commercial success. So throughout That's the 70s, it, you know, really to, 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 you know, to kind of summarize, the 70s for us was, was a, a period of trying to find ourselves musically. We tried all sorts of different sounds. We tried all sorts of different bands, all sorts of different approaches. And eventually, by the end of the 70s, we had really come up with a, 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 something that we felt was really ours. And that was the disco era. The, the late 70s was when the disco era And we were definitely not involved in it in any way. Although we were kind of taking the idea of the grooves and the things that people were liking to dance to and trying to incorporate that somehow into our music. But we weren't pandering to any particular style or sound. I would, I would love to know what was some of the influential moments for you as you're continuing to grow in, in both your grow comfortable into your sound and your identity as, as a duo and finding new ways to, to continuously um, have something to say, I think is the best way to say it. So I think, so let me frame this in a, in a way of, I think it can be, I think it can be easy as an individual, as a human, to when you find something that works, to want to replicate it because, hey, if, if it's not broken, don't fix it, kind of a thought. Um, but I think what's, what's more um, challenging and more rewarding is to think about, okay, how can I have something different to say while building upon what I've already put out there? So what were some of the more moments for you that were some like pivot points or influential moments where you approached your music and your body of work with a, a unique thought process of finding something new or slightly different to say? Pretty much through our whole career. Um, sure. the, the, the pressure to replicate success really came, did not come from us. It came from the outside. It came from radio and it came from the record companies. Um, they are always, you know, looking for, uh, you know, the easy way out. Um, that is not something that we were ever comfortable with and something we fought against on our whole career, especially through the 70s. Um, you know, when we were with Atlantic Records and did Abandoned Luncheonette in 73, they wanted us to do Abandoned Luncheonette 2. And of course, we did a complete 180 and recorded with Todd Rundgren and did an electronic experimental record. So we've, had, we've never really gone down, we've never bent to that, um, to those pressures. Uh, one thing I would say is over the years, if you look, listen to all our records, and especially even the big hits, not one of them sounds like the other. Um, true. Sarah Smile does not sound like You Make My Dreams Come True. Man Eater does not sound like Out of Touch. I Can't Go For That does not sound like Rich Girl, and so on and so forth. Um, we have never, ever tried to uh, do a... Um, you know, to go, to go that route. What we really tried to do during the 70s was to find out how we could, what was our best um, support system for recording? Would it be the studio musicians that we were used initially in an early part of our career? And we realized that what we needed was a road band that was good enough to take into the studio and to keep consistent with our, so that we'd have a consistent flow between our songwriting, our recording, our touring would all be done with the same ensemble and the same uh, group of, of uh, musicians to keep uh, something consistent. And it really wasn't until the very late 70s and into the early 80s when we came upon that magic combination. And that led us to the great success that we had, commercial success we had in the 80s. Right. I'd love for you to share some of your fondest memories of writing certain material, what different songs or maybe a few specific songs which stood out to you that you were proud of and what you learned as a result of that. Well, you know, all the songs have their own story and they're Fair. all they have a special quality, uh, you know, some more than others. Uh, She's Gone, the very, you know, the very first thing that kind of put us on the map. That song was written in a very unique way. I had met a girl uh, down in Greenwich Village 
Um, we were hanging out and then uh, we were supposed to get together on New Year's Eve. She never showed up. So I sat in the apartment with a guitar and went, well, if she's not showing up tonight, she's never showing up. And I wrote, she's gone, the chorus. But it was written like a Cat Stevens folk song. Uh, Daryl came, I played it for him, he really liked it. He sat at the piano and he came up with this very signature thing that you hear in the beginning of that song, the piano groove, which kind of uh, really put us on a course to write the song in a different style. So that, that, that song was written very quickly, probably in an hour and a half, we wrote the entire thing. You know, uh, so many songs have these unique circumstances. We've never been the type of songwriters who write a kind of a literal story song, you know, where we tell a story in the course of song. But what we do is we use uh, real events and real emotions. And we kind of, um, I guess we use them as, as metaphors or symbolic in symbolic ways to, to tell a story. Like for instance, the song Kiss on My List, um, is not about, it's, it's your kisses on my list of the best things in life. It is not necessarily mm. the best thing in life. Many people don't get that subtle meaning. Maneater is basically written about New York City. Uh, it may, the Maneater is not a woman, it's the city of New York. I that love that. Chew, that will chew you up and spit you out. It was writ, written during the heyday of the 80s when, you know, if you, if you saw the movie Wolf of Wall Street, well, I was living that, you know, yeah. um, wow. that world. Um, the, you know, the world of excess and, you know, tremendous amount of money and, um, you know, that, that sort of thing. And that's really what Man Eater's about.
um, I can't go for that is, is, is about a not being pushed around by the music business, not being pushed around by managers and, and uh, record companies and people trying to tell you what to do and saying that, you know, we want to do what we want to do the way we want to do it. So all the songs have, you know, to us, they have a, a very different meaning than what probably the average person gets from them when they hear it. But that's the beauty of music is that they can, it can be interpreted in many ways. Yeah, I absolutely love that. And, you know, there two two things popped out of what of what you were talking about. And I think, you know, I do think, you know, the wonderful thing about music is the fact that folks can get different things from from the same song. But, you know, speaking about, you know, you're talking about um, can't go for that. And I'd really love to, that brings up a thought. How how were the two of you? Because I think this is what I, this is how I want to frame it is I think you and Daryl Hall having this iconic duo that lasts and has stood the test of time and has been consistent as well. You know, you see so many groups break up, so many duos break up or change course or, or what have you. And the fact that y'all continue, continue to stay together and continue to, um, go down this path, constantly evolving your sound is fascinating to me. And I'd love to know how did you combat a lot of that pressure from different records or diff uh, executives, different labels? How were you able to retain the essence of yourself and the duo while combating those outside uh, opinions? Well, when it came when it came to dealing with record companies and things like that, uh, we had a late, we had a manager who was very strong willed. And he did, uh, you know, to his credit, he kind of kept us out of the music business, you know, uh, everyday, you know, stuff. Um, he, you know, that was the positive side of it. You know, he, he wanted us to just be artists, be, be, be pop stars, you know, write the great songs, make the great records, tour the world, and, you know, and just be out there doing it. That was the positive side of it. The negative side of it was that it, it fostered a um, kind of a, um, a perpetual, uh, you know, childhood where you could be irresponsible, not have to think about, uh, you know, certain important business things and let someone else do it for you. And whenever you do that, usually bad things happen. So, you know, it had, but it was a, it was a two-sided, uh, you know, the knife had, uh, had two sides to it. So, uh, it was one of those things, um, but that's what happened. We we were never, you know, we never allowed uh, the record company to actually come into the recording studio while we were working ever, which wow. is completely different from the world of of recording artists today, where the record company executives and various people in the on the business side are intrinsically involved with making the music, you know, everything from you know the song choices to whatever. We were the exact opposite of that. I love that. And then you also talking about Maneater and living in that era of Wolf of Wall Street, New York City. What can you share a little bit about your your interactions with the city during that period of time and how it shaped you moving forward from there? Well, we moved to New York in 1972. Um, so, we, you know, even though we're known as a Philadelphia band, our influences are based from the music we heard in Philadelphia growing up. But we actually never recorded in Philadelphia. All our recordings were made in New York, L.A., and mostly New York. And uh, so the, the city of New York was absolutely, uh, you know, you know it, it, it made us who we were because of the influences that we were able to, you know, we were part of the, you know, we, we saw the new wave punk movement happening. We, we lived in Greenwich Village. We, you know, I used to go to see Patti Smith and the New York Dolls and the group television, you know, at the Mercer Arts Center. You know, we hung out with Andy Warhol at the, at the Max's Kansas City. You know, there was, so we were part of that whole artsy uh, downtown uh, village, 
you know, artistic music scene. Um, and that, uh, that, you know, that kind of, uh, it, it really influenced us very, very much. And the other thing was we were on the road all the time. So the experiences that we garnered on the road, traveling, the people we met, the experiences we had, traveling the world, you know, all over the world. Um, that all get, get, got, you know, once we got into the songwriting mode, all those experiences would filter, would be filtered through our, you know, the, 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 the creative process. Right. I love that. As we're wrapping up this segment, I want to know, has there, is there one specific song that meant a lot to you from the, the Daryl Hall and John Oates collection that perhaps you don't get to discuss as often as you would like? Um, well, you know, I, I, let's put it this way. Uh, we have over three or 400 songs. Um, <laughs> you know, we probably have 20, 30 hits. So, and the hits, you know, fortunately for us or, or unfortunately for our catalog, it, you know, they overshadow everything we've ever done. Um, and, you know, that's what happens when we play live. People come to want to hear the hits and we have so many hits that that ends up being our show. Uh, but I think we have an incredibly deep uh, and interesting musical, uh, musically interesting catalog of songs that are, a lot of them are really unique. And, um, when we made our, we made a box set, I think in 2006. And when we went through the box set, Daryl and I had to go through our entire catalog to pick songs. And it was really interesting because it kind of surprised me that the, our output was so, I mean, we made an album and toured every year from 1972 until 1986. And sometimes we made more than one album. So, cause we had live albums and compilations and things like that. Right. So um, the output was, was tremendous. And, um, there's songs like, you know, there's, there's a song that we wrote on the, on the Voices album, which is actually the, the title song. Um, it's, it's called Diddy Doo Wop, I Hear the Voices. Mm -hmm. And um, that song was written, uh, uh, was written about a, one of the mass murderers that was happening in New York City at the time. These guys were coming into the subway with machetes and cutting people up. It was on the front page of the, New York, of the Daily News, New York, you know, and Daryl and I were basically just looking at the news. We were looking at what was going on in the city, how crazy it was. New York City in the 70s was, was pretty crazy. Uh, it was dangerous, it was dirty. Uh, you know, it was not the New York City of today. And um, we literally took it from the headlines. And, but, but what we did was we said, wow, these guys are going around murdering people and all this. They obviously are deranged, but what made them deranged? Yeah. And he and I came up with this wacky idea. We said, you know how you sometimes get a song stuck in your head and you can't get it out of your head? Well, we, we just fabricated this fantasy that this, these crazy murderers got doo-wop music stuck in their heads and they couldn't get it out of their heads and that was what drove them to kill people. And we wrote that song about that. It's called Diddy Doo-Wop, I Hear the Voices. It starts in my head and it ends when I chop. Diddy Doo-Wop. I mean, that's an amazing song, I think. Yeah. And, and the story is crazy and it's wacky yeah. and weird and, you know, but that's, that's how we are. I, I absolutely love that. Well, you're listening to After the Encore. I'm your host, Joe Shaw, and we'll be right back after this. Welcome back to After the Encore. I'm your host, Joe Shaw. I'm here with John Oates. And now let's talk about your solo career, which 
in and of itself, you have so many different records. And we were chatting a little bit offline about your memoir. So I think let's the best place to start in this section, because I do want to end with your most recent record. You literally just dropped your live record in Nashville. Um, but I want to stop or start with um, what was your decision-making process to go into your solo career and was it uh, was your first record in 99 or am i getting that time frame 2000, mixed up 2000 2000 okay so what was that process like for you obviously you'd been with hall and oates or daryl hall and john oates for so long um what was your motivation there's the word the motivation uh to have a solo career at that point well, uh, Daryl had been making solo albums since the late 70s. Um, I was never really motivated to do it. I had other things I was doing. I, you know, I, I raced cars and flew airplanes and did a, had a other interests that I wanted to pursue. Uh, really, but during the 90s, when Daryl and I were not working very much, um, I basically kind of dropped out of music in a sense. I worked a little bit with Daryl. We made one album in 96, but basically I spent that time living in Colorado and, and really having a, per, you know, kind of establish a personal life. Uh, I got remarried, had a kid, built a house. It wasn't until the end of the 90s when I started getting a little itchy for, to get creative again. And I had, uh, I had, I had done a production with a really great singer songwriter who lived in Oklahoma and he had a lot of connections in Nashville. Uh, so during the process of working with him, uh, I met a bunch of great songwriters and musicians in Nashville and they all encouraged me to come, which I did. So I began to go into Nashville in the late nineties, early two thousands. And that really is what opened my eyes to the possibility of doing a, you know, having a, you're finding a certain career, a solo career path. And what it had to do with, I, I was really embraced and I made a lot of friends in the Americana music community, the roots kind of roots music. And it really brought me back to the things we talked about earlier, uh, the stuff that I learned with Jerry Ricks and the folk music and the blues and stuff that I was doing before I met Daryl Hall. Um, and so all of a sudden I, I, I was, I became part of this musical community that had a lot of the same influences that I did. And I realized that I could go back in time to the stuff that I was doing prior to Hall and & Oates. And I could use that as a jumping off point to have really a, a very unique and individual solo voice, so to speak. Right. Uh, and that's how it started. So I began to work with people like Sam Bush and Jerry Douglas and Bela Fleck and, on, and so on and so forth. And eventually, which evolved into me tapping into the roots of uh, American popular music and real and, you know, and kind of bringing it up to date and re in a reimagined way with this good road band that I'm now working with, who are some of the greatest musicians in Nashville, uh, world-class studio musicians. Uh, and that uh, that's, you know, that kind of brought me up today, but it took about five albums to do that. Right. I think, you know, it's it's something that is interesting to me to find the the you know I think what's the best way I want to say this I think whenever whenever one has a artistic endeavor such as releasing an album like you've got or maybe even like this podcast like we have here um, I think in each each time you're releasing something you're exploring not only the the journey and the story of the the moment itself, the record itself, but also it's a little bit of holding a mirror up and finding out what else am I learning about myself in that, in that respect, you know? And so I want to know there's so, so much great material here. Um, but I would love to know from you, what was, um, some of your, what was a, a, What's the best way to ask this? I think what are in a, in a similar way of of songs that uh, were interesting to you from the Daryl Daryl Hall and John Oates collection. Uh, also, what was uh, some some songs that you've written off of your albums that have meant a lot to you uh, from a songwriter and a performance perspective? Wow, um, the, yeah, boy, that's these these questions. You you can't pick a song. It's just they're all so they all have a story. Sure. Um, you know, I, okay, I did, I, in 207, I did a song, a, an album called Thousand Miles of Life. And it was very, um, very introspective. My father had uh, experienced the first, uh, first bit of old age and illness and hospitalization. I started to see the, um, 
see the, uh, the horizon, so to speak. I started, the horizon of life began to be a little bit more obvious to me. I wrote a lot about that. It wasn't the most uplifting album. It was probably a little depressing, quite frankly, but it was what I was thinking about, so I wrote it. After that, I did an album called Mississippi Mile with a guy named Mike Henderson, who uh, was the guy who started the group Steel Drivers. And that album, we dug back, he was a great blues player, and I dug back deep into my early rock days. The early days of rock, I did. I covered the Coasters, uh, "Searching" uh, song. I did. Um, I did even. I even did a version of the Mississippi John Hurt, "Make Me a Pallet on Your Floor." I did some real hardcore blues. Uh, I did the Percy Mayfield song, "Send Me Somebody to Love." So it was really. I, I that was the glimpse that hey, I can go back in time, but I can make it my own and reimagine it. And so that was that album. And that album led me to an album called Good Road to Follow, which was a series of collaborations that I wanted to do with other people. And I collaborated with Ryan Tedder from One Republic, uh, Vince Gill, uh, Becca Bramlett, all these really amazing people who all brought their unique um, experience to that record. So that was a unique record. And yeah. then that record led to um, the Arkansas album, which was really um, an exploration of the early days of popular music. I realized that uh, a, a, an entire generation, actually probably your generation, a lot of them might assume that popular music, American pop music started with rock and roll. Right. But it didn't. It, it started, you know, it's, well, I mean, how do you define a pop song? If you can buy it on a record and hear it on the radio. Well, right. radio was invented in the teens. Uh, record players were pretty uh, common by the 1920s. So I, I went and I said, you know, I'm a pop musician. I don't even know what one of the first hit records is. And I realized, I found a record that was uh, sold a million copies in 1923. And I said, you know what? And that, that was the light bulb moment. I said, ah, okay, let me do a song like that. And then let me see what else was being played on the radio at the time and jukeboxes. What, what was popular with people? Pop music is called popular music right and i i basically wanted to shine a light on the earliest days of american pop music and that's what the arkansas album turned out to be and the arkansas album has evolved into me going on the road with this band who made the album the good road band and of course making this live album you know i think it's so cool to have a concept where you're finding these popular songs from way back when and then getting to kind of put your own spin and perspective on on them for this record and then of course of course the live album that's it's such a unique concept because i think you're absolutely right in that i know when i was growing up i mean the music that my folks were playing for me was a lot of the 50s 50s music so a lot of the doo-wop music a lot of the the those type of groups and i assumed this is the beginning of pop music and then of course elvis and rock and roll etc um not even stopping to think for a moment until way later that um music has existed prior to the 50s and <laughs> we have so many other things. So I think that's so cool and such a unique concept that folks are have got to you know are definitely digging. I want to know. I want to pivot just to, for just a moment to talk about your memoir and and get from you the motivation to write the memoir and then why 2017 or 2016 2017 was the right time to kind of put it out in the world. Well, I, I had done a series of interviews with a guy named Chris Epting who grew up in Pennsylvania near where I grew up. Um, he seemed to have a very, uh, very deep understanding of, uh, of a lot of the things that I was doing and, and um, what I was all about. Uh, and, and during the course of the conversations that we had over a period of time, you know, he said, you've got great stories. You know, if you ever want to write a book, you should let me know because I'd love to help you. And he had written a number of books. He, he had done a number of books. So he had the experience. And I said, you know, maybe this is the right time. And so he and I began to uh, work together to collaborate on this uh, book. And I sent him a series of journals and, uh, that I had written throughout the decade of the 70s. And he began to research the stuff that was in the journals and he began to bring out various questions about certain things. Um, and he would basically tee me up for memories. You know, he would say in 1974, you were here, you said this, you, you were thinking this, um, you met so-and-so. And so these memories began to flood back. And it was like, almost like a regressive therapy in a way, you know, <laughs> just uh, 
the memories, one memory led to another, another memory led to another, and it became like a, and I realized it was that the, writing the book, you know, was a, a great experience, but it was also a gift in a way, because it caused me to remember things that I may never have thought about again for the rest of my life. So in a way, it was, um, it was very, uh, it was therapeutic, it was very creatively satisfying. I'm really glad I did it. Um, and it took a lot of work. It took two and a half years to write. So yeah. I can imagine, you know, and I think that's really helpful when you think about, because I'm constantly thinking about, you know, where I'm going to be at. And I know I'm only 33, so I've got time, but where I'm going to be at when, when I, when I'm gone and, and my kids are, are looking at my body of work and then what are they going to get from it? What memories are they going to have? And so to have this kind of this, this ability, this memoir to have for your, for your kid and any grandkids or anything like that, to be able to pick up and, and get to know you on a, on a different, on an intimate level is fantastic. And, and on that subject, as we're getting close to wrapping up, I'd love to know, like, what do you want your legacy to be? Well, you know, I, I, I want it to be that, um, that I, that, you know, I was born a musician and I dedicated my life to, to, to what I do. Um, and I tried to be, you know, I try to do it to the best of my ability. Um, and, and the other, the other thing I, you know, I want to be known, you know, I'd, I'd like to be remembered as a good father and husband and a, and a good person in general who, you know, treated people with respect and, um, you know, and respected life. And that's, uh, that's probably as good as it gets. I absolutely love that. That's fantastic. Well, final question, um, or actually two, two more final. First question is if people want to follow you and see what you're up to, what's the best way for them to do that? Um, I'm very active on Instagram at John Oates official. Um, I have a website, johnoates.com. I'm on Facebook and Twitter and all the other like, <laughs> you know, usual suspects. Um, and that's it. You know, um, I've got to think my Instagram page is kind of fun. I've got a, I've also got a, a, a secondary Instagram page called car elaboration because I'm a car person. And that's so awesome. I do a lot of my automotive stuff over there. So to not to confuse people. Uh, so that's always fun too. Um, that's, that's basically it. I absolutely love that. And then the final question we've got here is if someone's listening and they want to, they're trying to uh, perhaps break into the music industry or do their own thing, what's a piece of advice or a mantra that resonates with you that you would like to pass on to them? It's the age old, um, the age old approach. Uh, find out who you like, try to copy them, try to understand what it is that they do that gets you that that touches you that makes you that motivates you or inspires you and try to try to you know unpack what they do and in a way if you do that and you're creative somehow that will rub off and hopefully evolve into something that's personally and individually unique to yourself awesome well john thank you so much for stopping by the show today i really appreciate it thank you man it's a good interview thank you and here to play us out one last time is john oates
solid on your floor, baby. It is so. Down a pallet on your floor Soft and low Soft and low, baby Make me down a pallet Make me down, make me down Soft and soft Soft and low, baby Mr. Guthrie Trap on the lead guitar right there. And of course, the amazing Sam Bush right there on the mandolin. Josh Daddy Day on the drums. Steve Mackey on the bass. Mr. Nathaniel Smith on the cello. And right over here, Russ Paul on pedal steel. This podcast is powered by Roberts Media Group, your resource for podcast development. For more programming and advertising opportunities, please visit us at robertsmediagroup.co.